Thanks for listening to the Q&A podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sundays, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Hello again, and uh, welcome to our next episode of uh, the River's Edge Q&A podcast. Uh, I say this is episode two. But I've been calling it episode five, The Podcast Strikes Back. So Karsh wants to start with episode four, uh, then do five and six, and then go back and do one, two, and three. Yeah. Uh, and that won't make any sense unless you're a Star Wars fan. Yeah. Uh, and we're not going to bring up Star Wars. No, this will be because the only allowable Star Wars. This is yeah, we're done. <laughs> we could after do a this. different podcast around. We could actually uh, debating uh, the the best Star Wars movies and the order in which they should be ranked, uh, but we're not going to do that today. Uh, we have some more questions to answer, and we've just got some great uh, questions lined up. We'll see how many we can get through. So thanks again for uh, texting in your questions. We've loved uh, reading them. And uh, this is the first one we'll tackle. We just want to jump in and, and try and knock out as many as we can. But the first question is this. Uh, what happened to the dinosaurs? Were they on the Ark too? So for those who are maybe new to the scriptures, you have Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, God is, is creating and ordering things. Uh, he mentions the animals. It mentions Adam and Eve. Adam and, uh, is naming the animals. Uh, and then it kind of goes into the story of humanity for a number of generations. Eventually, the earth gets so uh, wicked. Humanity is so wicked in the eyes of in the eyes of God. I think it says that like, every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. Right. Which we that's amazing. Like we don't talk about that. Like I, I think about that, and I think like we, were were all of was every inclination of Hitler's heart even evil all the time? Like. I'm going to say no. You know, he set terrible evil in motion, but like, and so just think about like, what, what would that state of humanity actually look like? Um, In, in God's grace and God's mercy, he says, I'm going to, I'm going to set, hit the reset button on this thing. uh, And, and tells Noah to build an ark, which is just a really big boat. He says, build this big boat, put you and, you know, and your sons and your son's wives on the boat. Uh, I'm going to bring all these, animals onto the boat i'm going to flood the the earth um, and start over the the boat will you know the floodwaters will eventually recede and as you read the story you think hey i guess you know the only animals and humans who have made it into this new world were on the boat and so as we start uh, follow that storyline the question then becomes um, what about dinosaurs? Mm. Uh, we mm. dig into the soil and we see dinosaur bones. Um, every four-year-old loves their dinosaurs. Um, we love our Jurassic Park movies. I wanted to be an uh, archaeologist because of Jurassic Park. Yeah, I think it, yeah, that probably. Um, I don't think they need that many archaeologists, but certainly a lot of little boys wanted to. So you have dinosaurs. Um, archaeologists tell us a lot about them. Uh, in terms of um, sort of scientific theories of uh, the age of the earth 
and uh, when dinosaurs roamed, they're you know most theories are going to say, hey, that was you know 200 million years ago, dinosaurs roamed the Earth, and uh, they all went ex went extinct, uh, and then hundreds of millions of years passed, and eventually human beings uh, you know arose through evolution. Would be kind of more of the the scientific naturalistic. Uh, expl uh, explanation of history. So you have that explanation of dinosaurs and then you're looking through the scriptures and you say, well, how do I reconcile that? How do I reconcile kind of dinosaurs with Genesis 1 and 2 uh, with, uh, with the flood of the earth and kind of hitting the reset button and uh, and all of that. So Karsh, what are your, what are your initial thoughts oh, on the dinosaurs? Where do we even start? Well, it's, so the answer to this question has to be linked back to how you read Genesis 1, how how and in what time frame did God create the heavens and the earth? Right. Um, what was the timeline between Genesis 1 and Genesis 6, so between creation and the flood? Um, all those questions are really relevant. What, what did the flood flood is a good question. Mm -hmm. um, for most of my life, it was just assumed that when those words Adama and Eretz are used in Genesis 6, which are different words for earth or land, it meant planet earth. Um, but that's not necessarily necessary uh, linguistically or narratively. Um, so the question, uh, I don't know where you want to start. You want to start I, in Genesis 1? I, I would 1 start or? with Genesis 1. I think you. this is a really big question, and it's going to test your interpretation of Genesis chapter 1. There's this seven-day creation account. Um, and so how do, you, how do you interpret that? Uh, then we have Adam and Eve and all the stuff that follows. But depending on how you interpret the first chapter in the Bible... Um, the the question for some could be resolved right there, and there'd be no need to even approach the flood. Right. Um, so I That's would true. I would tackle them in that order. So um, Genesis one verse one is in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And if you've been following our Sunday podcast, you know that we spent a whole Sunday just on that verse and sort of the different ways that it could be interpreted. Uh, looking at the Hebrew, for the very first verse in the Bible, uh, there's, there's a good case to be made that it's sort of saying, hey, in the prior time, uh, in the Reshit, in, in the prior time, before what you're about to read, there was an era of time, unspecified period of time, in which God created the heavens and the earth, which would have been a Hebrew phrase that meant everything. Everything that is, everything that physically exists. Some Bible scholars would even throw the animals in there. There's, there's this unspecified period of time that was the lead up to this very specific thing that we want to talk about. So in the lead up to, the, to the, our current story, God created everything that exists. Now, if you take that interpretation of verse 1, already it, it shifts the conversation massively yeah. in, in my mind, just by how you interpret the first verse of the Bible. Well, and, and it, it's related to how you understand the the second verse, too. Oh, absolutely. And it comes back to these words for earth. Right. Um, so let's say, for example, that, uh, that I'm on board with the um, sort of Hebrew-based theory that would say, hey, there was an unspecified period of time, the Reshit, and in this unspecified period of time, God created everything that is. The, the physical universe, um, e even plants and animals, 
all maybe it was you know god could have done it in days but it's an unspecified time it could have been billions of years the author of genesis is, doesn't seem at all concerned with that so if, if you're on board with that interpretation of verse one then when you get to verse two well that kind of explains how there's there's already planet earth and god's already doing something but now we have uh, another sort of uh, interpretation debate just on verse two yeah. So what does verse 2 of the Bible say? So it says, Now the earth was, usually see, formless and void, formless and empty. Tovu vavohu is the... Chaotic and useless yeah. is what I've heard as the, the sort of translation. Yeah, it's it's notoriously hard to translate. Um, now the earth was formless and void, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So... Yeah. So the earth was formless and void. Now we're on verse two. There's different ways to interpret that. Right. Traditionally, in kind of our American evangelical seven-day young earth creationist reading, we would say, well, the earth is planet earth, Mm -hmm. and all of planet earth was kind of just chaotic, dark, useless. I just picture some like the primordial waters, you know, and clouds covering, you know, the dark deep. Yep. Yeah, there's actually no, I mean... Yeah, no statement of light. It's it's formless. It's just kind of like, you know, I almost picture like putty, right. like dark antimatter yeah. putty. There's no order. There's no beauty. There's no life. Yeah, um, would be one interpretation. Yeah, that's one way to read it. The other way to read it is that um, the the land, specifically the land that is going to be prepared as the garden, um, which is also the same land that will be given as a promise to Abraham that that land, the the Eretz, Ha Eretz, the land. Um, so instead of now the earth, you say now the land was... So it all hinges on that interpretation of now the earth. Yes. Now the, which is Eretz, yes. right? Ha so, Eretz. Ha Eretz. So now the Ha Eretz was... Uh, formless and, and empty or whatever right. the, the translation would be. Right. So what is hot Eretz? Is that talking about all of planet Earth? Or is verse 2 just talking about the Garden of Eden, which is the same plot of land that becomes the promised land, which is kind of the focus of most of the Old Testament, kind right. of revolves around this land and the promise. Right. And so I don't know how much we want to keep digging into... We'll actually cover it on, yeah. on a Sunday. So we'll we'll take a whole Sunday just to talk about different theories of how to interpret the seven-day creation event of Genesis 1. Yeah. And we'll talk about this. We'll talk about the land. So if we skip over that for now, it, all we need to say is there's a way of reading the first two verses of the Bible in which it says a whole bunch of stuff happened leading up to this. But then there was a specific time, a seven-day work week perhaps, in which God prepared the promised land, turning it into the Garden of Eden, placing Adam and Eve into the garden. And so some Bible scholars would say, hey, all of creation and all that God was doing could have taken billions of years. What we're focused in on is sort of humanity being commissioned as priests in in this, you know, Yeah, I mean, garden. essentially what the idea is that God, within his newly created world, or within his long ago created world, he creates a space for him to be with humanity, and it's like a temple. It's right. where humanity can be with God, and we can't get into it, but there's, there's, it's not, it's not just wishful thinking to think that this is the case. The, 
the actual um, dis- description of how you're supposed to decorate the temple come the the Mosaic Covenant, well, it's garden imagery. Right. Like you're carving pomegranates you were re- into... Taking imagery from of the garden. Exactly. And, and there's a lot there we could talk about. Yeah. So we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit more uh, like next Sunday or the Sunday after. All that to say, and, and hopefully we haven't lost you in the process, but all that to say... We're talking is, about dinosaurs. Remember? Dinosaurs, right. Bring it back. Um, so all that to say, there's ways of interpreting Genesis 1 fully acknowledging uh, what's actually being said in the original language that would leave potentially vast periods of time before the seven-day creation series of events uh, in which dinosaurs could have lived for hundreds of millions of years and then died out or whatever the current scientific theory is. Um, So if you interpret Genesis 1 um, in, in a number of different, what we would see as legitimate interpretations, then it kind of takes that, shifts that whole dinosaur thing to, I would place them, you know, um, pre, you know, pre-day one. It's in the, it, it's in the reshit. It's in the beginning time right. leading up to the creation of the garden. Um, I think it would probably be worth talking about, um, should we talk about the alternative? If you're trying to yeah, so if you, place if you... dinosaurs... Uh, let's say you're a young earth creationist yeah. and you say dinosaurs, no, 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 dinosaurs were created uh, in the seven day work week leading up to the Garden of Eden. Adam was there, you know, and he's saying, hey, that's a pig, that's a cow, that's a stegosaurus kind of a thing, yeah. right? Assigning names to yeah. them. Kind of like in Jurassic Park, like when the brontosaurus sneezes on the little kid, that's kind of what I picture. <laughs> Adam's just sitting there. Okay. Yeah. So, so if you were to take that reading, um, Genesis 1 is a description of God creating everything that exists in the period of six days. He rests on the seventh day. Well, dinosaurs are necessarily there because we have like evidence of bones and everything. So in that reading, yes, uh, dinosaurs would have been included in the ark. Well, there's, there's actually probably two ways to read it. Either yes, they're on the ark. And so that's why you get the description of um, Leviathan and behemoth in the book of job you know because there's human memory of the dinosaurs these giant creatures yeah dragon uh, legs that are as big as tree trunks that sort of thing um or they could have all died out in the flood and i've heard that theory as well yeah and and yeah when you go with the younger creationist route and the global flood, which I pin in my mind is kind of the almost this like default American evangelical view. I don't know if that's well. Fair. It's because I think that's probably because that's the way most of our like kids' books are written. Mm-hmm. So when I was taught, you know, in Sunday school, the Noah Ark story that that's what it is. Right. Or, right. Right. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So then and then the reading actually. I mean, it's not. It's not outlandish because and I've been to the Creation Museum in Kentucky and. The, the description of it is the dinosaurs die out in, in the flood. In the flood right. And the reason that they appear to be buried really, really low and really, really old is because the weight of the flood really like compacted the earth and changed it in such a way 
that it, it looks old. It looks like it's way too deep to be right. within the last 6,000 years. Totally. I think they that they just put uh, a documentary on Netflix that's called Is Genesis History? Mm-hmm. And that was their whole, that was the whole premise of the show. I didn't finish it, but I think that was the whole premise of the show was, hey, the, the flood actually, the way that that works, if there was a global flood, the way it would compact the layers, it would make everything look very layered and very old in a very short amount of time. Right. Um, so th- their whole thing was, hey, it was either um, something that was moving very slowly over a very long period of time or these huge this forces, catastrophic. cataclysmic forces moving over a very short period of time. And we could play with that a bit and kind of debate those things. But the, the, what puts you into those debates is I'm a young earth creationist. Verse one of the Bible is the start of a seven day work week literally nothing in the universe the universe did not exist before that seven days later the universe has gone from creation to adam and eve several generations later you have the flood and then you're saying well how do i pack dinosaurs into that storyline right right Um, what we're saying is we wouldn't jump straight to that conclusion based on how you read genesis 1 in the original language which we'll talk about Um, but also I think it would be worth bringing up uh, the, the flood as well, because there's at least two ways to read the flood account. Uh, as if this hasn't been confusing enough already, <laughs> we're going to add in one more factor, which is, was this... Because you read it in English, and it seems to say, the whole earth was completely covered in water to the top of the highest mountain. Right, and you thing. actually have you have records of... Um... Yeah, there's reasons to believe scientifically from scientific evidence and from stories that are passed down in various cultures across the world that speak of a global flood. Um, the problem is that you don't have to translate those words, Adama or Eretz, these different words for soil or land. You can translate them as earth, but more often than not, they're translated as things like land or ground. Mm-hmm. And so when it says that like the the blank was covered with floodwaters well if we say the earth was covered with floodwaters that has a whole lot of meaning if we say the ground was covered with floodwaters that's a little bit more vague right if it's across the surface of the whole land that same special land that has been the focus from the opening from verse two of scripture all the way through to the end of the old testament and and beyond that yeah to some degree the new jerusalem uh, right 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 but i i think it's easier to see in the old testament yeah. as, as christians we spend so much time in the new testament we forget about the the, the focus of the land and the role of the land in the old testament because we just kind of focus on hey new testament promises new people of god mm-hmm. the land was central in the old testament this plot of land this uh hot eretz mm-hmm. and so to say that that's what verse two is focused on and to say that that's what got flooded um, it is is not like this wild harebrained idea. It's not you know some scientist invading scripture and telling you what is and isn't possible. It's actually a Hebrew scholar saying, "Well, wait a second. Here's what it says in Hebrew," um, and and then it tends to create tension and controversy along the way. Which is probably a good time to pitch uh, the book by John Sealhammer. If if any of this is interesting to you, if you, you want to go deep into it, yeah, we'll talk yeah. about it on a Sunday. Um, but there's this book called Genesis Unbound by a guy named John Salehammer, which basically um, it has a really it, it summarizes this issue with how you define earth or land or hot eretz, what right. you do with that word, um, really well. Right. Okay. Well, we're gonna go ahead and move on, but I'm gonna say when it comes down to the dinosaurs, 
Um, I'm going to say that they, for me, they fall through the cracks in interpreting the first two verses of scripture. Uh, and I'm not saying that's the only way to read it. I just think, Hey, that's when I read scripture and try and get the clearest interpretation that I can, they kind of fall through the cracks there. Um, but I'm really open to other, other interpretations. I think if they were on the ark, you'd need a really big boat. Yeah. Um, because they're really big. Lots of cubits. Um, but if you're talking about, yeah, a, a flood that covered the surface of the whole uh, land that becomes the focus of the Old Testament, then then that's something different. Um, so we'll go ahead and move on. If that, this is the um, long question. Yeah, we had, this next one's a long one. But if that last one raised any questions, uh, let us know. Uh, so long question. Here we go. Genesis seems to be filled with rawness. Lot offers his daughters up to the men of Sodom when they demand to have sex with the visitors. Lot's daughters get him drunk and lay with him so that they would get pregnant. Abraham lies about Sarah being his sister to Abimelech. Hagar being used by Sarah and Abraham to bear his son and then being sent away into the desert after Isaac's birth. These are God's chosen, but they are not upright. It is difficult to read Genesis after reading the New Testament mostly for years. We need some insight into this ancient writing style. The New Testament has more uh, training and correction in right living compared to the Old Testament. I am imagining what a new believer or a seeker nowadays, uh, how they might see this. I like the videos and the understanding of men and women being created in God's image and of sin messing things up. Uh, Even God's chosen people are broken. Uh, Thank you for taking us as River's Edge on this adventure through the whole Bible. I'm eager to learn. Well, thank you for that question. Um, I think the answer to that one is profound. I would sum up the question just by saying, why is um, Genesis, and really I would say the Old Testament, filled with such rawness? Uh, and I love the examples that were, yeah. were highlighted because they're really shocking to us. Yeah. Uh, as a parent, I think it's shocking when you read kind of the Lot story and you know these visitors banging on the door and saying, bring out the, you know, the visitors you have in your house. We're going to have sex with them. And you're like, what is going on here? And then he put, he throws his daughters out the door, which is like crazy. Yeah. Um, and then you have Abraham, you know, lying and, you know, using Sarah and, um, Hagar, this, yeah, technically not concubine, but this kind of like weird situation where Sarah says, Hey, like have sex with my servant and, you know, she'll be forced to bear this son. And then the whole thing goes sour and, just, hey, just send this lady and your son away into the desert to die. Yeah. Um, and it is. It's very, very raw. She said the New Testament has more training and correction and right living. Uh, these are God's chosen people, and and yet they're not upright. Yeah. Um, where, where do you start with that? So, well, the I mean, the simple observation is, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the entirety of... Scripture records for us, even the Gospels, you look at the way the disciples handle themselves. Um, there's a lot of rawness, and there's even more, and there's violence, and there's sexuality throughout the Old Testament. And yes, it's very raw. 
And yeah. part so, of the, so we wouldn't deny that no. or try and cover it yeah. up. Like it is, it's a raw And there's weird stuff. I mean, book. if you were to, like, as we go more into um, the other historical books, you look at Kings, you look at Judges, there's some stories in there that just, I mean, quite frankly, I just hope no one ever asked me about it in public. <laughs> um, you know, think of Elijah oh uh, calling the bears down. There's all this oh, other, right. there's just stuff that yeah. you're just like that. Violence and death. Yeah. And, yeah. But here, okay, so here's a key, here's a key part of how to read your Bible. The the genre matters. Mm-hmm. So what we're reading in Genesis, for the most part, is a narrative. It's a story that is, um, it's a, it, I don't say story in the fact that it's not true. I say right, story right. because of the way that it's written. It's, it captures a storyline right. that really happened, yeah. And there's, there is an underlying interpretation with it, um, but it's a storyline, which is really different than when Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians saying, hey, this is who you are in Christ. This is what you should do. They're just drastically different purposes. Right. So when we read Genesis, I mean, we're supposed to feel this sense of, why would you do that? Like, Abraham, you already tried the you, lying about your sister thing once. Like, again, you're just you're doing, doing it, it again. You're doing it to Gerar again. And, and, and Sarah, I think it's the second time Sarah goes, well, tell you know, he kind of, he's like my brother. He, you know, he kind of <laughs> is. And uh, at some point Sarah's like, I might as well just help him see this thing through. <laughs> right. Like, he's just stumbling all over himself. Well, and then you see, I think Isaac does the same thing. Oh, you it know? becomes generation. Yeah, you have, yeah. there's a lot of interesting stuff there. But I, I mean, the the point really is yes, and we should learn from it totally. And and it helps break down this idea that all the Bible characters in themselves are heroes. Abraham's yes. not a hero. Yes. Jacob's yes. not a hero. Yes. David's yes. not a hero. The 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 promise of it all is that God's been faithful to these really unfaithful people. Amen. So so God promises the land to Abraham. He even tells him to live upright. There's there's these there's a moral component that Abraham has to uphold, and God is still faithful to it even though Abraham fails. Right. And and we you know I could go into it, but can, can I jump in real quick? No. Okay, you finish. You finish. You finish. <laughs> I just have so many thoughts. No, I was just gonna say yeah. what we what we see is that full. You know, you feel this tension throughout Genesis. It actually builds through how the nation of Israel is unfaithful. God's still faithful to them. The kings are unfaithful. God's still faithful to them. Well, it actually comes to its fulfillment in Jesus. Yeah. And God is still that faithful God to us in our unfaithfulness. I got to look up the path. It's in First or Second Timothy where totally. he says that. Yeah. So, oh, so my thought, um, which which you know, kind of spawns directly out of yours, is this idea of I I want you to picture yourself. Um, you know, going after dinner tonight and reaching up onto your shelf and and grabbing your Bible to read it. And you're pulling it down off the shelf. But I want you to think about, as you're grabbing it, what am I about to read? Like, what is this, this book that I'm reading and what's it for? Because I think we've, we kind of tend to come at the Bible uh, with this assumption that it is uh, kind of this book on morality um, that's supposed to teach us how to live. It's like, okay, I'm a broken human. I am immoral. Uh, I sense there is a right way to live. The Bible exists to teach me the right way to live. Right. And so I even just now have the this, have this, like, I have this flashback to um, one of my friends in law school. And uh, Karshki and I both went to 
uh, a school that was just known for um, just being kind of godless and having these anti-Christian undertones. And uh, I, you know, we're, but we're always looking creatively to share uh, about Jesus. And I had this, this one friend in law school who I kept having these cool conversations with um, that were very eye-opening for them. They said, oh my gosh, like, that's like who Jesus is and that's what this is about and whatever. And finally I said, hey, do you have a Bible? Like, do you own one? And, um, you know, they said, oh no, I, I, you know, I don't, I've never owned one before. And I said, hey, I'll, I'll get you a Bible. So the next time we're hanging out, uh, I pull out the Bible and give it to them. Well, they have another friend with them, this other guy who uh, sees me like hand it to them and, and we're all in law school. And his response is, oh great, another book of laws to memorize. That's what he said. And we, you know, we're in law school plugging away and memorizing yeah. all of this stuff. Uh, and it really struck me. I thought, wow, is that what people think about the Bible? That it's just this book full of rules about how to live your life. Uh, because if that's what you assume the Bible is, then when you open the pages and start reading, you're going to be very confused. You're, you're thinking, here's this book that's supposed to teach me how to live in an upright manner. And who's like, who are the first people I read about? You know, Adam and Eve, wow, screwed it up. Their kids, murderers, you know, from there, like, okay. The whole, every yeah. inclination of everything, you know. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, from there you get like a world full of Hitlers or however you'd characterize that. And and then, okay, you restart after the flood. Yeah, and oh, then there's you get the drunkenness Tower of and, and you're just like, okay, this is the best you could do. Like these are the most like the righteous stories you could compile in one place. And I think we end up coming at it in this weird way that just says the Bible is here to teach me how to live a righteous life. Uh, and I don't think that's what the Bible is. I think that the people who lit, who, who engage with the God of the Bible and are transformed by Jesus from the inside out should absolutely be transformed in, in their living and their thinking and their actions. And there's a lot on that in the New Testament. But I think we have to start by asking, what is the Bible? Uh, because I think that actually, in my mind, kind of mirrors more of the the secular, from, from the outside looking in on, quote, religion and saying, oh, the Bible is just this rule book they have that's like full of all these people who acted righteously. And I agree with you completely. I think the whole point is, like, you're supposed to feel shock. And I think that's actually the bigger problem is that we just go in thinking, oh, you know, well, you know, Abraham's the hero and this guy's the hero. We're looking for human heroes. And we're saying we're looking for heroes of the faith, these like men and women of God. And and there's bits of that, but but really the focus is more human failure and and the reality of human failure. I love that the Bible is gritty uh, because that's the way life is. And so can you imagine being human beings stuck in this world that you and I know so well, full of tension and heartache and sin and it's confusing and it's not all black and white. There's a ton of gray. And then you open up the Bible and imagine if you found this sort of polished story where the right. only characters were this sort of, I think that's the impulse with guys like David, right? You you can see the biblical writers wrestling with like how have, you know, people of the Jewish faith approached David. Well, if you don't have Jesus, as the ultimate, as, as the God-man, as the human hero, the one and only human hero, who, who's the true human that Adam could never be, who's the true Israelite that Israel could never be, who's the true, he's the fulfillment of everything. You have this ultimate hero. Uh, and and th there's supposed to be hundreds of pages of tension leading up to him. There's supposed to be sort of this feeling of your gut churning and the outrage of like, Lot, like Lot is the most righteous guy 
in Sodom and he's throwing his daughters out for this like mob, you know, to have sex with. And you're like that, that's like the best guy in the city. You know, you're supposed to feel the tension. You're supposed to feel the outrage. Um, and, and so I don't try and erase that yeah. at all. Well, and, and as you're, and so as you're saying all that, the, the two other things that come to mind, well, it makes us reflect on ourselves too, right? Because I can read through then the, the stories of the old Testament and I go, yeah, I, I do the same sorts of things. Mm-hmm. I mean, like maybe I don't have daughters. I'm not throwing them out to the mom. Oh, right. right. But do I try and cover things up sometimes? Do I, right. do I, do I do those same sorts of things? I'm, I'm just like those characters. Right. And then it makes us like cry out all the more like, gosh, sin is a problem in the world. Totally. I, I, we know that things are not supposed to be this way. Who will save us from this body of right, sin? Right, right, Thank God Christ has. Totally. And when you read through those opening stories, so you have the global story of creation, um, the story of the flood. You have this massive stuff happening. And all of a sudden, chapter 12 in Genesis, boom, it's all about Abraham. And if you miss it, it's such a sharp transition that you almost miss it just reading through. All of a sudden, it's about one dude. And God makes a promise to this one guy about him and his descendants and how the world's going to be blessed through them. And what I often missed is that the the beauty and drama of the story is, is okay, Abraham and his descendants. Let's see how that goes. <laughs> and, like, Abraham immediately, like, massively, he, like, tries to, like, give away his wife practically. And he's like... That's the means by which you, right? (laughs) Like, how are you going to, like, have kids if you just gave your wife away to some foreign king or whatever the thing is? And then you have the Hagar thing where he sleeps with the, you know, the wrong person. And now there's this other kid in the picture. And and the whole thing is, like, all of us, it's supposed to be this, like, dramatic thing that's, like, there in free fall. And God is, like, right there in his faithfulness, holding the story together. And you trace down the line of Abraham and you're supposed to find drama and you're supposed to find, um, you're supposed to sense the craziness of it. And yet somehow God is holding the story together. Somehow he is faithful even when we're unfaithful. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the, the beauty of it, uh, of, of the rawness. One, that it matches real life. Two, um, that it, that it, it, it deprives us of human heroes and forces us to look to God and his faithfulness and, and ultimately to Jesus. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that? No. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a really good question. But I would say, why, why am I picking up my Bible? What do I think it's about? Uh, because if you're, if you're picking up the Bible, um, and, and, and there's so many ways we could try and sum up what the Bible is, I really like the idea of the Bible being covenant documents that like kind of teach us how to be in a covenant uh, with God, how to operate as, as the people of God and what our future hope is and all, where we fit in the storyline and all of that. If they're covenant documents, well, yeah, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and like that's huge in understanding like God and his covenants and covenant faithfulness and how, he's, how we can expect him to act in, in the new covenant that he has with us through Jesus. And so that's going to paint one way. If I pick them up believing that they're covenant documents, and there are other ways to describe what the scriptures are, but if I pick them up with that attitude, I'm going to be blown away by God's faithfulness. Um, And and it's going to propel me into saying, oh man, I need to cry out for God. We need him to, to rescue us. Versus saying, I am now picking up a rule book on morality. And, and then you read it and you're like, they did such a bad job of, of putting this together with righteous people. But I get the impulse. My, I mean, I'm totally sympathetic to saying, I want Abraham to be the hero. 
I want David to be the hero. I want, you know, I, I want it to be, you know, I place my faith in God and all of a sudden I'm a superhero. Um, and, and I think the reality is we are uh, more fragile, more vulnerable, more dependent on, on God and his rescuing than uh, our pride would, would be happy to admit. Amen. Okay. Um, I think we'll move on. If that raised any other questions, feel free to, uh, to text them in. Uh, the last question that I think we'll answer today is a really simple and really short one. I like it a lot. It's this. Is there value in knowing the original languages of Scripture? So for those who don't know, the Bible was not written in English. Uh, it was written thousands of years ago. And the initial part, which we call the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Uh, the New Testament was written in uh, Greek. And, and you can go back and study those languages. And so you, yeah. um, you know, you, you studied some of those. You have a, a master's degree, right, from, uh, from Western mm-hmm. Seminary. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've done two years. I have like a certificate from Western Seminary. Just um, finished that like a... A month or two ago and, and thinking about next steps but I didn't in, in my in the education I've taken so far at the graduate level I haven't done any languages you have uh, but it's a really interesting question do we um, do we need to know the Greek do we need to know the Hebrew uh, what's the value in actually learning those yeah so it's a good question because sometimes and I, I know I thought like this for a long time especially before I had to learn Hebrew I thought like there was this magical key to unlock everything. If I could just read the original text, then it would all make sense and all the confusion would go away. All the debate about translations would go away. Um, that's just not the case. That's not the way that language works. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially having spent a little bit of time with Bill Mounts, who was both on the NIV translation committee and the ESV translation committee, and he did a whole presentation on Bible translations what what I didn't realize we often communicated as you know Christian leaders when we when we reference um, the original languages sometimes we make it seem like people can't trust their English translation right, right which right. you can like the people yeah. who spent years if not decades on the English translations they did a good job like they did a really really good job they have different purposes, the Holman and the NIV and the ESV and the New King James and the NA, they all have different purposes, which is important to know. And we can talk about that at some other time, but you can trust your English translation. The benefit of having a little bit of Hebrew or Greek or being able to like sight read those things is for things like we've been talking about with hot errors, because right. there are some pivotal things where if I didn't have a background in language or um, if I hadn't been exposed to some of those things, it's really easy for me to be, be thrown around by whatever the, the argument du jour is. So if someone says, well, you know, this Greek word actually means this, and they build a whole theology and book on it, well... Which it, du jour? Uh, soup, like soup of the day, you know, soup du jour, soup of the day. Is that like Dijon? No. Dijon, no, no, totally different. Yeah. In, well, I was going to make a Dumb and Dumber reference. You still can if you want. Well, he says, <laughs> he asks, he asks the waitress, "What's the soup du jour?" And she says, "Oh, it's the soup of the day." And he goes, mm, "Sounds good. I'll have that." <laughs> is that me right now asking yeah, what exactly. du jour is? Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah, okay. So whatever the the like argument that is new and fresh and oh, I have this new. It's kind of gnostic. I have this new understanding of what totally. this word means. Yeah. 
you can get you can get off track pretty easy if you don't have a rootedness either in a community or in these languages. So there's benefits to it. Do you need to read it? Is it going to make you a super disciple? Is it going to make you more righteous? No. It probably makes you a little bit more pretentious. Though. <laughs> we do have to be careful. I mean, I, Paul talks about, you know, knowledge. Knowledge for the knowledge, sake of knowledge, yeah. Knowledge, like, puffs, you know, pride is, like, puffing up. And yeah. you're just, like, accumulating knowledge, but love builds up. Yeah. And so uh, there probably is something to be said there. Um, for me, sitting on the other side... Uh, I would say that there is. I'm actually not motivated to like person at this point in, in my journey. I'm not personally motivated. But then then I see scholars who un- unpack things and say, oh my gosh, that's actually really helpful to have a basic understanding of the original language. And so I agree. I don't think it should generate this huge distrust in the Bible. Like, oh man, it's all, it's all a conspiracy, man. You know, <laughs> yes. like they're withholding all the real facts. Like if you learn the original language, it, in some sense, it just shifts the debate. Because you still have a debate to have. It's just about right. a different. It's just a. It's just one step deeper. Right. Um, and so it's not like I agree. It's not like you peel back the English and see. Oh, now I finally understand. Um, you know what the yeah. Bible actually says. But I think we happen to be in like Genesis one and two, and there's a ton of controversy there in terms of what they actually mean. And I I think of all places in Scripture, Genesis one and two are some of the places where I found it most helpful. Yeah, and I think well, and the other thing with that because two thoughts: very few people are doing sight reading of Greek or Hebrew. Mm-hmm. I mean, people who have their PhDs, but most most pastors and Christian leaders who have Greek or Hebrew in their back pocket, it's a it's used as a tool along with all this good technology that exists. Right. Blue Letter Bible is an online one. Logos has has an online platform and a computer program. There's a Cordons, there's all of Tr- there's all these good technology pieces out there that even if you don't have right. like even if you can't pick up your Greek New Testament and just read it and be like, oh that's the aorist tense. The uh, the the tools that exist out there can be really helpful, even if you just get like a really brief introduction. And you can find classes online through um, uh, Bill Mounts's whole thing, biblicaltraining.org. Mm-hmm. You can do like a Greek class, you can do a Hebrew right. class. Yeah, in the digital age, you have access to so much. So whether you want to take the class or you just want to jump in and say, hey, I just kind of want to highlight some words mm-hmm. and see... Where else do those words appear? Right, yeah. and, and do all the cross-referencing and that sort of stuff. Um, there's great and often free yeah. uh, material that you can use. Um, so ho- hopefully that was... Do you have any other thoughts on that? Or I've, I feel like that's kind of a neat, concise answer in terms mm-hmm. of... like My opinion is like I'm not super, vated, super motivated right now to learn it, but I'm really glad that other people have been. Um, because I do think it, it becomes helpful when you get into it. I mean, yeah, there's the, the tremendous value in just like most of us don't read our Bibles. Yeah. Just pick it up and <laughs> yeah. just read your Bible in English and you're going to be way ahead of the game. Uh, but at some point, if you're really wrestling with stuff or want to go deeper, then you might say, hey, yeah, yeah, I, I either I'll get the right tools or in my case, get the right friends and, you know, just have you know, people that I can jump in and say, well, you know, what do you, what about this? Well, that, uh, I mean, that gets at my answer. When people ask me, like, what's the best Bible translation? My sarcastic and hope I don't say it like so crassly, but the best Bible translation is the one you're going to read. <laughs> so oftentimes I get that question because people want to pick a fight. But if you're mm-hmm. just really wondering like, hey, what's the best Bible translation to buy so that I can just just sit down and read it? Whatever one you're going to be able to read. 
Yeah. Great. Um, well, I don't. I don't think I have any other thoughts on the original languages. Oh, I thought things. you were getting ready to like have the fanfare come in, and then the credits were gonna roll. Okay. Yeah, we'll we'll work on that. We're not that far along in the in the in the podcast world yet. But that is uh, brings us to the end of uh, episode two or episode five. Should I give it? Depending a on whether or not you are a Star Wars fan, uh, Karshi, by all means, give us a blessing and send us on our way. Okay. So this is uh, from Romans fifteen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Uh, Continue to send in your questions, and we will uh, do the best that we can. And uh, until next time, go in peace. again for listening to the Q&A podcast. If you have questions you'd like answered, text in your question to 208-503-3865.